electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thanks and welcome, everyone, as we continue CNBC's special coverage of these markets in turmoil. And it's been weeks uh, of turmoil at this point. Today, stocks have been on shaky footing, uh, initially surging into positive territory as the Fed announced a barrage of new programs to keep the market functioning. That now includes a, quote, open-ended commitment to keep buying bonds and other assets. The gains didn't hold as investors continue to await movement on this massive stimulus bill. The Senate is expected to be holding a vote later this hour. That vote would just bring the bill back to the floor. And we're also going to be speaking with NEC Director Larry Kudlow in just a few moments. Uh, the Dow has now wiped out all of its gains since President Trump's ele- election and is on pace for its worst month since 1931. Still odd, uh, Bob Bassani, to see it below 19,000, 18,917. I guess you can say we are off the lows, though, sir. Yes. Uh, and I think the important thing is we are reacting a little bit to Schumer's comment about a deal being closed. So let's take a look. Uh, you can see the markets here still down, but well off the lows here. I think the important thing was that we've been in a very wide intraday range, again, 100 points on the S&P 500. Uh, the, the low was in the middle of the morning, about 2192. We've been lifting, as we've heard Senator Schumer saying, very close to a deal. We heard Secretary Mnuchin say that as very as well. Both sides talking about this very close. So obviously the market's coming to believe that something uh, good is going to be coming. Uh, unfortunately, the banks are just in terrible shape today. Uh, banks are the KBE is at an eight year low. Energy stocks also uh, not recovering much. The real estate investment trust still down six year lows in that area. Tech's holding up very, very well. Apple's getting hit hard, but other sectors of tech like Intel are trading up. I want to note the banks very weak tonight uh, today uh, and even other kind of other kinds of lenders like LendingTree also notably down today. If you keep an eye on that and the mortgage insurance companies like Radian, uh, MGIC and Essent, all really weak, obviously concerns about their ability to uh, to uh, provide uh, all the coverage that uh, on claims they may or may not be getting. Guys, back to you. Uh, those are big declines, 16, 18 percent of those uh, groups, Bob. We appreciate it. Good to see you, sir, for now, Bob Bassani. Okay. The Senate is set to hold a procedural vote this hour to get the massive stimulus bill back up for vote. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin telling CNBC earlier that Congress is, quote, very close to an agreement, and he emphasized they must get it done today. Billionaire Ken Lingon echoing that sentiment with some colorful language. Listen. To our people in Washington, get off your asses, okay? There's going to be plenty of time to argue philosophy. Well, Kayla Tausche joins us now. Uh, Kayla, with where things stand and uh, the next important steps to watch at this hour. And if any progress was made, Mnuchin told uh, Jim Cramer he was going to talk to McConnell and uh, Schumer and others. And they did have those meetings this morning, Kelly, and there does seem to be some shared sentiment about today being the day that something has to be done. But as always here in Washington, the devil is in the details. On the Senate floor right now, we're about 20 minutes into an hour of debate. And debate it is. Tensions are high. Voices are raised. And you are seeing senators uh, from all of these states coming forward and exactly uh, saying exactly what's going on uh, 
on their home front, what the financial realities are and what they need to see in this bill in order for their vote to be secured. You heard John Thune from South Dakota saying that there is enough money for small businesses and that the economy is burning and that it needs to go forward right now. You heard Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, saying that hospitals in his state don't have cash flow to operate beyond 60 days, stressing the urgency of providing more money to the health care system. Uh, Democrats have been asking for more money for health care, for more money for states and local governments, and for climate mandates to be tied to aid for airlines and other industries that burn fuel. To that, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, uh, if you let the entire economy crumble, that'll lower your carbon footprint, all right? Uh, a broadside to Democrats there. This is where the bill uh, that failed in the cloture vote last night stands right now. You would have these $1,200 payments to adults, $500 for children below a certain income threshold, $350 billion to small business, $500 billion to state and local governments, and $100 billion in direct payments and Medicare payments for hospitals, and then a broad bucket of $500 billion in loan guarantees for businesses. So that is where it stands right now. A senior administration official tells me that progress behind closed doors is slow and steady, that the White House and Congress are working towards solutions. But clearly, Kelly, uh, today will be key, and we expect that procedural vote to happen later on this hour. All right, Kayla, thanks for the update. We appreciate it. Kayla Tausche in Washington. In late February, our next guest came on the show to try and reassure the markets about the spread of the coronavirus in this country. We have contained this. We have contained this. I won't say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. We've done a good job in the United States. Well, a month later, we're in a completely different situation, obviously. With me now is the White House's National Economic Council Director, Larry Kudlow, uh, joining us by phone. Larry, it's, it's good to have you here. Do those uh, words echo in your ears? Well, look, when I said that, this was right after the president boldly put travel restrictions on China. When I said that, it was true, factually. There are only about 50 cases now. I don't believe anybody could have predicted uh, or expected uh, the kind of dramatic surge that we've been having as this thing takes over. Uh, I'm just saying I'm as good as the facts. The facts change. Of course, I've changed my view, but that's what uh, I was trying to communicate at the time. It was in hand and it was contained. Now we're way beyond that. Again, nobody could have predicted or expected this. And we're working on, you know, we're working on this uh, financial package to try to keep the economy going again. That's the important point. Absolutely. Larry, there's two other comments that you've made that people I know are a little upset about. It was in uh, late February saying that, you know, uh, you could look at the market, the stock market, take a look at it. It's cheaper than it was. That was 35 percent ago. Uh, telling David Faber, you know, you should go to work, go about your business. You know, America should stay at work. I, I mean, why did, was there anything that you guys were told at the time that indicated coronavirus needed to be taken more seriously um, or not? Or were you, were you not given that information? I, you, help us understand. Well, again, uh, the situation overtook a lot of things, and we've had to change our strategy, just like every other country in the world had to change our strategy. So regarding the market, uh, right now I would probably make the same point. Secretary Mnuch has made this point. Other people have made this point. If you're a long-term investor, I would bet on America, and I would stay in the market, and I might want to buy. You've got a 30% down. We've been through these things before, Kelly, uh, 1987. Uh, 2008. 
I, I think it's the market becomes uh, more attractive. Price earnings multiples have come down. Again, that's not the key point now. But again, for long-term investing, I always stay with, with America. Uh, and the, the key point right now, if I can get back to the financial assistance uh, package, this is the largest Main Street financial assistance program in history, Main Street. All right, we're talking about helping individuals and families and small businesses and the workforce. And again, if, if you're a solvent company, uh, at the beginning of this year, January 1st, uh, you're going to be solvent. We will make sure you will be solvent on July 1st. Okay, we will keep that good businesses in place. And in particular, in particular, I want the Federal Reserve Lending Program, which they have expanded under 313 with the Treasury Department. They have now done a great job. They have expanded this to small businesses, student loans, automobile loans, credit card loans, money market funds, commercial paper, and a variety of other points. The key point is this is a transparent program. Uh, the Treasury's Exchange Stabilization Fund provides the equity uh, so that the Federal Reserve can make these loans, and the loans will get to Main Street. The loans will get to the small business, which then can continue to pay the workers uh, very rapidly. That's the key point I want to make here. Uh, and I think that's why this bill has got to pass in order to shore up the economy and bolster the economy so we can get through this. I, I think it's a matter of weeks and months. It is not years. Uh, that's why this package is so important. Larry, why, why do you think that – let me, I guess, phrase it a little bit differently. We, we hear now this discussion of, by the president but by others about whether we should keep this economy sort of open, so to speak, and functioning as much as possible or whether we need to, to shut things down entirely in order to contain uh, the human toll, which threatens to overwhelm the health care system. Can you explain to us what the swing factor is? In other words, at what point do we determine that it's safe enough for the country overall or for region by region to go back to work? Are we going to quarantine just the most vulnerable population? Or, or what does that mean when we say we're going to reassess and see whether the economy is going back to normal? How, what, what will make that determination? Well, I'm not the health expert, we're going to look at a lot of things. I mean, I think what the president is expressing, and I, I've heard this from a lot of very smart people um, active in the economy and the markets. At some point, you have to ask yourself whether the shutdown isn't doing more harm than good in economic terms, perhaps even in health terms. And again, I'm not the health expert. Uh, I think, um, as my friend Scott Gottlieb wrote in the journal today, uh, widespread testing. We are now embarked on massive testing programs will probably help uh, to isolate, as you say, geographically. Maybe that's what we have to focus on. Uh, I don't want to make any commitments here. I'm just saying people are asking whether the shutdowns are not making the patient worse. Uh, I can't answer that, Kelly. It's not my place to, but I think it's an appropriate question. And again, I come back to this financial assistance package. Uh, I want to keep <laughs> want to keep the small businesses open. I want to keep the workers working. I want to keep the payrolls intact, and we're willing to do whatever it takes. Uh, working with these assistance assistance programs, working with the Federal Reserve and the Treasury programs. This is the essential point. Let this is an incredibly difficult, challenging period. No question about it. 
It's completely different than it was a month or six weeks ago. Uh, everybody knows that. I don't think we should have to harp on that point. The point is from here, can we keep the U.S. economy going? Can we bolster the economy? Can we help the workers and the families and the small businesses? Uh, I believe this package is incredibly important. Uh, the sooner they get it done, the faster it's going to start helping it. This will hopefully get us through the next bunch of weeks where we think the worst difficulties may lie. Absolutely. So let me ask you about the, the access to this money. Uh, this is one of the main questions that's coming up from people. They say, how? Where do I go to get the money? Um, is it to my bank because it's going to be a small business administration uh, funds or is it, as you just referenced, something that comes from the Federal Reserve? Again, does that go through a local bank? I mean, how does this work? Where should people go? Well, it's a good question. I think the, the Federal Reserve lending will run through the markets, first of all. You've got a lot of securities that they're backstopping right now, asset-backed securities. Secondly, uh, the assistance will probably run through the banks, most of it will run through banks that will get it into the small and medium businesses. Um, and they can, that can be done pretty fast because, remember, the Treasury and the U.S. government is backstopping. We are essentially guaranteeing this. So those would be the, the two avenues. Now, the other parts of the package, um, the $3,000 per family, for example, uh, I think most of that's going to run through the IRS and that will be a rapid uh, delivery system. Uh, unemployment compensation, uh, where we, you know, plus it up so that unemployment insurance will be equal to your wages, uh, that will run through the unemployment system. Some of that might run through the IRS. I think those um, delivery systems have to be worked through. It could be done fairly rapidly. But I think the banks are going to play a big role. And I think the reason that the exchange stabilization fund is so important is that provides the equity for the Fed's lending programs. That provides the guarantee for it. And that's why uh, talk about, you know, slush funds and so forth, it's just not the case. Again, this is the largest Main Street financial assistance program in history. It's covering everybody. It's not just a couple of companies. It's going to cover the whole broad-based economy. And it's going to fund a small and medium business as much as more than anything. That's half the economy right there, is it yeah. not the small and medium businesses? So you're really going right after it. And it'll be broad-based, and it's not going to be limited to a few corporations, not at all. Are there strings uh, attached to the corporate uh, lifelines, let's call them, uh, that have to do with buybacks, that have to do with employee retention, uh, things of that nature. Um, you know, and, and will the taxpayer participate on the upside? Is there going to be equity? Because like TARP, I mean, we made a ton of money on that ultimately uh, with the government, so to speak, buying, buying in at the lows. Uh, what are the strings that you would attach to this, uh, if any, in this package, or can that all continue to be worked out? Well, I think it's going to be worked out. Uh, I, I think some of those conditions will be attached. Um, I myself particularly like uh, the taxpayer taking a piece of equity in these loans, as you noted. That turned out very well uh, 10 years ago or so and could probably be tried again. Warrants are a possibility. I don't want to get ahead of the story, and I don't want to get into too many of the details because those are under discussion. Other conditions 
uh, may enter in or may not enter in. I, I don't want to uh, get into that. But uh, I kind of myself personally, I kind of favor uh, the taxpayer equity because uh, we will get paid back by this as the economy will recover. I mean, the, the prayer here, Kelly, is that we are talking weeks and months, not years. OK, mm-hmm. I can't I don't know that. I can't predict that. And that's why I said, you know, my containment remarks uh, four or six weeks ago were based on facts. Today, the facts are much, much worse. I get that. Uh, On the other hand, a lot of the experts believe it's going to be a matter of weeks and months. And if that is the case, then this assistance program will bridge us to the other side. And there could be a strong recovery. There could be a snapback. The economy was very strong, as you know. Mm -hmm. January and February were very strong months. Uh, before the virus uh, took off. And so we're hoping to pick up where we left off, and that's why we want to maintain uh, the payrolls and the individuals working and the small businesses. You know, you, you can't have a good job unless you have a good business to work at. So both sides will be impacted, and that's right. the hope that we have. On the, if we get to the other side of this, we will come back very strong. America usually does. Well, and that's why we're watching so closely, obviously, all the action on Capitol Hill today. Larry, one, one final question, which is there are smart uh, investors I, I talk to who look at the credit markets and say, you know, it's going to get worse in the stock market before it gets better. Now, we don't know how much worse. Is there a plan? I mean, we've already broken the glass, right? We have fiscal stimulus going. The Fed's thrown everything that it has there. Is there a further plan, uh, a backstop, if the stock markets look a whole lot worse uh, in the near future? Or do we just have to accept that this is part of the process of discounting this hit to the economy, which some are saying could be 30 or 40 percent in the second quarter? Well, look, you know what, Kelly? I'll cross those bridges when we get to them. Let's do this one step at a time. Let's get this financial package. I'm calling it a mainstream package. That's basically what it is to help the workforce and to help families, okay? Let's keep the businesses that were solvent at the beginning of the year solvent through the summer, all right? Let's keep uh, the assistance programs in place. I don't want to make any any forecasts on that. Uh, we could conceivably come back with more, or as you implied before, um, we might have a different strategy. Uh, right now, we're committed to this financial assistance. Nothing, in my view, nothing is more important than this financial assistance package that is before us. I hope they do get a vote today. Larry, I just have to ask you on a personal level before we go, what is, what is your number one regret about this past six weeks? Is it that the CDC didn't do a better job of telling you guys what was going on or getting the tests ready? Is it that, you know, I mean... W- when you look back on it, I mean, so much time was lost, and I understand we haven't been through something like this before in the U.S., but, you know, Asian countries had. I mean, what what is kind of the one thing that you just sit there going, you know, if only we had done this different or if someone had just told us or we had, you know, what is that one thing? Or maybe there's I multiple things. I would, you know, this is a hard, difficult position. Yeah. Uh, have we ever been in a position like this before? No. All right, at least not in my time. I've been through a whole number of uh, crashes and downturns and this and that, nothing like this. I'm not going to pick apart. I'm not going to second guess. Uh, I think we have to look ahead. Uh, I think, you know, people in this administration uh, have been working very, very hard. We've got really smart people 
the health people are working hard. Our economic teams are working hard. Uh, we're dealing with the unknown, and we're doing the best we can. So I'm not going to single out one thing. This is what it is, and we're trying to cope with it as the best we can. Virtually the entire country is mobilized. The president, the president has been, a t in my view, he has been a terrific leader in this. He, he was early uh, with the travel restrictions, uh, and he was early with the task force, and we've been early in communicating and working with the private sector and trying to develop remedies and therapies uh, and vaccines. And he was early with the uh, European travel restrictions. We've done what we can. Things turned out to be much, much, much tougher than anybody dreamed possible. So I don't want to get into the blame game or the second-guessing game. We are doing the best we can, mobilizing America's resources. And I think if you look down through history, Kelly, America's resources usually work out very, very well, and we are capable of dealing with problems and coming out the other side in even better shape than we started. Yeah, for me, it's not, you know, the blame game. It's not. It, it's lessons learned. We, unfortunately, this is probably not the last time we're going to deal with something like this. Hopefully, it's the last time for a while. But, you know, uh, you're coming off the worst month for the market since 1931. I just don't like those kind of stats, you know. Well, you just have to move through it. Um, again, I can't uh, predict. All I know is we have completely mobilized. It's government-wide, but it's country-wide. It's America-wide. It includes the smartest people in the private sector. It includes the scientific and medical community. It includes the economic thinking. Um, we're just doing the very best we can, and I think you have to keep your chin up, and I think you have to have a lot of faith that we will get through this. I personally believe we will. You know I'm an optimist, and um, I work through with you and others when we were broadcasting during 08 and 09 and 10. The, we came out of that, and we got even better. Recent years, the economy picked up. I'm going to give the president's policies. You know, before this uh, uh, tragedy, the economy was doing extremely well by all accounts. There's no reason why we can't pick it up from there. There's no reason why we can't through, get through this period. And these large market declines can reverse themselves very rapidly, Kelly. And over time, that's the history of the U.S. stock market. It takes its hits, sometimes brutal hits, but it manages to come back and grow. That's why I think long-term investing is still a good idea. All right. Larry, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it very much. Uh, big day. I've had a lot of them lately. Uh, Larry, thanks. Larry Kudlow is okay. the National Economic yeah. Council director. Uh, again, referring to the stimulus bill, we are awaiting a vote from just to see if it can kind of go back to the floor uh, here in the next hour or so. Um, Mr. Kudlow, as you just heard him saying, quote, if you're a long-term investor, I would bet on America, adding that the stimulus package covers the broad economy, will help fast in the coming weeks, and that the Fed's moves today are crucial and will provide a backstop. On that note, I'm joined by Art Hogan, who is chief market strategist at National Securities, and Bill Smead, who is chief investment officer at Smead Capital Management. Uh, Bill, I'll just start with you on, on some thoughts here about um, what we've heard from Larry Kudlow, but so many others. Say we've heard from the Treasury Secretary, from the NEC Director. We've heard from David Tepper, you know, one of the biggest investors who kind of explained the, the trading pattern of the past decade uh, and so forth. Um, what, what's the takeaway here? Because <laughs> for all of that, the Dow's sitting down 140 points and, uh, you know, the credit markets just don't look that great right now. Well, uh, think of World War II and think of we're a nation of George Bailey's. We're, we're fighting the Battle of Bedford Falls, right? We're, we're, we're fighting a war by restricting our business, 
restricting our movement, restricting our activity. And each time we have a crisis, whether it was 11% inflation in 1981 and Paul Volcker tightened credit to 18% on T-bills, or whether it was the TARP that you mentioned in 08, $800 billion worth of bank purchases, a very unpopular medicine, by the way, an enormously, enormously unpopular medicine that spawned Occupy Wall Street. Uh, now the medicine is stop business. So the question for investors is, will, will the medicine come off at some point? And that's a lot easier than figuring out whether Paul Volcker's tight credit's going to work or whether the TARP plan was going to work. Because we know that, that when you get done, uh, that people will go back to their lives. And, and so that's, that's why uh, it, it's so interesting, Kelly. One last thought on that. In the, in the first Gulf War, the popular stock was Raytheon because they had a way to shoot down Scud missiles. And I had clients that would call and say, hey, I'd like to buy some Raytheon. No, you don't buy the thing that's doing the best in the emergency, right? Because when the emergency disappears in six months or 12 months, right. you will have overpaid for it. So I can imagine you're not a fan of Clorox uh, right now, the stay-at-home trade. The net, well, we know how you feel about Netflix, uh, Bill. Let me just bring Art in for a moment. Art, as we kind of digest all of this, stocks have made a little bit of a comeback this afternoon. You know, the Nasdaq's up about 1% now. Uh, just heartened by comments from Senator Schumer that maybe the, this bill still has a future or what? How much depends on this stimulus bill right now? Yeah, I think that's part of it, Kelly. We certainly you know, need all three legs of the policy response stool to be in place, and monetary policy is certainly firmly in place uh, with, uh, with um, J-PAL really pulling out a Mario Draghi moment of we'll do whatever it takes and actually putting numbers behind it. So I think that's firmly in place. And, and the healthcare response has been massive, albeit starting too slowly, but the massive response now in terms of getting testing, that's why we're seeing our numbers explode exponentially. But I think the third thing, obviously, we're close enough that we can, we can almost guarantee where you get fiscal policy response is probably going to be this week. It may even be, you know, over the next two days. And that certainly puts all three legs of that stool together. But I think what we're forgetting here is, is the good news that is happening outside of the United States. While we're in the throes of this, we're in the early innings, we're in that upward exponential curve in our, in our coronavirus uh, infection discovery. The other side of the planet, right, we've got China where they actually had rush hour traffic in Beijing today. Their they're, they're new case discovery peak, and they slowly got back into business. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, is also holding up and becoming true in Germany. Their, their uh, new discovery curve, the inflection there is flattening. You're seeing the same thing in Belgium. So we have to understand, these things actually run their course at some point in time, and you do actually get back to work. Now, do we know exactly when that's going to be or what that template looks like? No, but we do know there's going to be a point in time when our new case discovery isn't growing exponential, it flattens out, and we gradually get back to work. And those are the things that we're kind of forgetting. One quick follow-up to that, Art, is how, how much do you think the market would drop if that stimulus bill didn't move forward? I think it would feel like that, that moment that we reflected back on TARP when, the, when that didn't pass. I mean, we watched that on live TV and the son of vote count, and, and, you, and you recall uh, you know, how quickly the market sold out precipitously there because it's just a major disappointment. Something that the market's taking for granted is going to happen, right? So, you know, if in fact we were to see that this get, even get being held up, not yeah. just not, you know, being brought to a yeah. vote, but getting held up, yeah. this market's going to be able to vote pretty quickly. Bill, I'll bring you back in uh, for a final thought here. I know you share that point of view and that you, the, the stocks that you would buy include some of the names people just don't want, the, the Bank of America's, the American Express, Lennar, and so forth. 
Yeah, the, the, the TARP program of buying, recapitalizing the banking system, uh, we, the, the markets went lower and the bank stocks went lower and the market went 25% lower. Hmm. And, and, and that's a pretty good model for what you need to be doing. The government made a ton of money buying those banks. They were greedy when others were fearful. And I'll be shocked if the things that are getting beat up the most because of all these fears are, are not the best performers the, the next five years. If you mark something off 50% versus marking something down 15% and we go back to normal, who are you going to make the most money on? Yeah, because people are still going to be flying. They're probably going to go, right. you know, maybe back on the crew. They're going back in the hotel, that's for sure. Um, we take your point. Gentlemen, thanks. Yeah. Uh, good discussion thanks. today. Bill Smead and Art Hogan talking about these markets. Thank you. Again, the Dow's down about 250 points right now, but the Nasdaq did turn positive. A different picture in the oil market today. Its collapse lately has been putting major pressures on producers. It's another aspect of what's been weighing on stocks. In fact, Citigroup's Ed Morris telling CNBC earlier that he wouldn't be surprised to see crude oil go negative. Joining me now on the CNBC Newsline is Dan Jurgen. He's the vice chair of IHS Market. Brian Sullivan is here with us as well. Uh, Brian, let's start with you because you have some reporting about uh, how bad it is in the market for some of these names. Yeah, Kelly, thank you very much. I mean, obviously, great interview with Larry Kudlow, and he's talking about all these credit programs and sort of a lot of these acronyms, and probably people are thinking, what does that make, what does that do, why do I care? Well, let me give an example. So on Friday, according to two sources that I spoke with, EOG Resources, which is one of six A-rated oil and gas companies, one of the top-notch companies out there, uh, could not get a bond deal done. They tried to float a bond deal on Friday, a couple of billion dollars to maybe refinance some obligations due next year, uh, but there was simply a lack of interest, and they withdrew that bid. So you can call it a failure, or you can call it a withdrawal. But here's the point, Kelly. The fact that that EOG bond deal did not get any traction, they're one of the top-rated companies. Look at the other 99% of oil and gas companies that have debt, that have lower credit ratings, and a weakening oil price environment. I think some of these programs that are out there, TALF and these other ones, are designed, especially the corporate buying program, to potentially provide a backstop for a lot of these companies, not just oil and gas, but ones that have debt coming due that Wall Street seems to have no interest in. EOG stock up a little bit today, but... Uh, not right. a good day for the bond market in EOG on Friday. No, and it actually parallels a lot of what's happening more broadly, where the credit markets are being really tough right now. Uh, Dan Jurgen, have you ever seen oil prices go negative, and what would happen if that happens here? Well, I would say I, I saw it, uh, but that's certainly what happened in the 1930s. But I think where we're, the analogies where we are now, they're not precedents, but their analogies is 1998 and 1986. Because what we're looking at right now, Kelly, is sometime in April running out of storage because more oil is pouring into the system ultimately by the end of April than we can store. And when that happens, uh, prices, that's when, you know, you should expect in April they would go lower uh, when that happens, and then that's when people start shutting in production. So I, I don't think we'll see negative, although that has in the last couple of days started to bubble up because you had had negative prices in terms of, of natural gas. Right. And the people wonder if, we're, if we are going the way of nat gas. Do you think that's possible, Dan? No, I think what, you know, people keep talking about the term demand destruction. This is not demand construction. This is demand contraction because of the shutdown in the global economy. Uh, the, the drop in demand that we're seeing, are going to be seen in this quarter, is four or five times bigger than happened in 2008, 2009. But when this ends, then demand is going to uncontract contract and come back. 
But as Brian was suggesting, for a few, for a few months, it's going to be a very difficult time uh, for these companies, both in the United States and internationally. And on top of that, you still have an oil price war going on between two of the three biggest producers in the world, Russia and Saudi Arabia. Finally, Dan, on that note, do you think the U.S. should effectively join OPEC? Because there were reports last week that, you know, Texas was calling, you know, Russia or Saudi Arabia. I mean, there could be long-lasting well, uh, implications uh, of that, I, right? I, I, yeah, That's there is illegal, talk of that, if I can, if I can deal with that. Uh, in this piece I have coming out tonight on the Washington Post, I talk about that. I don't think the United States is going to join OPEC. And anyway, this isn't about OPEC right now. It's about Russia and Saudi Arabia. I think the solution, that's what I'm arguing in this, in this article, is really in the G20 framework of the, of the largest economies of the world to get beyond this impasse between Saudi Arabia and Russia. It could be solved by a phone call between the leaders of those two countries, but right now it looks like their positions are very entrenched. So it's adding more oil to the market when demand is just shrinking right now and will shrink for a couple of months until we come out of this. Oh, we appreciate the, the little tease. Uh, that piece will be in the, in the Washington Post. Uh, Dan Jurgen, thank you. Brian Sullivan, appreciate it as well. Great reporting. I wish it was better news, but nonetheless, uh, very much needed. Let's get to the number of coronavirus cases around the world, uh, which does continue to grow. Sue Herrera has the very latest for us at this hour. Sue? I do, Kelly. Some new numbers just released moments ago. The CDC says there are now nearly 33,500 confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States, and that is more than double the count on Friday. The U.S. death toll is now 400. That is roughly double Friday's 201 cases. Spanish Prime Minister Sanchez says that he wants to extend the state of emergency in his country until April 11th. Spain has one of the strictest lockdowns outside of China. It is keeping Spaniards confined to their homes, only leaving to buy groceries, visit a drugstore, a doctor, or briefly walk their dogs. And German Chancellor Angela Merkel has initially tested negative for the coronavirus, but she'll have additional tests in the coming days. She's been in home quarantine since yesterday after a doctor that she saw ultimately tested positive for the virus. As always, you can get more on the coronavirus coverage that we have here at CNBC by going to CNBC.com. And Kelly, uh, next hour, we are going to have the latest numbers out of Italy, which may show that they may be starting to peak, which would be great news if it indeed is confirmed. Yeah, believe me, all the traders, all the investors are focused on that data, hoping for some positive signs. Sue, thanks. We'll see you then. Sue Herrera. With more than 20,000 confirmed cases, New York has become ground zero for coronavirus. City hospitals are sending the alarm about how quickly they'll run out of supplies, out of beds, and out of manpower. Contessa Brewer is downtown with more on how the city and state are bracing for what's to come. Contessa? Look, Kelly, today the New York governor says that he has a two-pronged plan of attack. The first is to reduce the rate of spread. He's doing that by ordering non-essential businesses to shut down. Financial district has emptied out. He wants people to stay at home. Uh, What we're seeing is that there's at least 10 states now that have issued these stay-at-home orders and even more states that are shutting down non-essential businesses. The second plan of attack here in New York is to increase hospital capacity. You mentioned those 20,000 coronavirus cases. That's 1% of all global cases at this point, and 13% of those cases have to be admitted to the hospital. So the governor said today that hospitals have to aim to double their bed capacity, especially those ICU beds. But he says they're required to get an additional 50 percent. And then FEMA and the Army Corps of Engineers is coming in to set up emergency emergency hospitals 
At the Javits Center, for instance, we know that there will be at least a thousand beds. These will be for non-COVID-19 patients, so they won't be the um, the patients who are going to be acutely treated in the hospitals. And then you need additional health care workers to deal with all these extra beds. The governor has a plan for that. We are going to the entire retired community, health care professionals, and who are licensed, registered, and we're saying we want you to enlist to help. He says he's had 30,000 responses so far. And remember, these are uh, people who already have been licensed. They're already ready to go. He says the insurance industry employs an awful lot of doctors and nurses, and he needs them now in the hospital and not working uh, in their insurance industry. And once more, he has called on the president to install the Defense Production Act. The American Medical Association is adding its voice, saying that the president needs to nationalize or, or force the production of these masks so that the states are not competing against each other, Kelly, and driving up the prices. Yeah, and it's so eerie to see the streets empty behind you. Contessa, thanks. Contessa Brewer in Manhattan for yeah. us. Coming up, the president touting a combination of drugs that he says will help combat the coronavirus. Others aren't so sure, and we will get the latest on that science for you. And some analysts see buying opportunities in the wake of this market plunge. We've got the names when we come back in two. Stay with us. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back with a vaccine unavailable for now. The race to find an effective treatment continues for coronavirus. There's a ton of confusion around which drugs are being considered and should be. Meg Terrell is here now to separate fact from fiction uh, to the extent that we can, Meg. And where do things stand right now? Well, Kelly, things are moving incredibly quickly right now. So I'm going to tell you about three different programs. Uh, the first, of course, is one that President Trump tweeted about over the weekend. It's a combination of existing drugs, a drug for malaria and an antibiotic. Uh, it's called hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. He was saying this could be one of the biggest game changers in the history of medicine. Well, people are saying we need more data. Uh, just from the existing data, that is not clear yet, according to scientists and people in drug development. So New York is starting a clinical trial of this combination on Tuesday. Folks say there may be promise, but we need the trial results to be sure. I also want to tell you about a Gilead drug called Remdesivir. This is an experimental antiviral that's in clinical trials. The company's saying they've had an exponential increase in requests for this drug on what's known as compassionate use, and that's use of the drug outside of clinical trials. Because they've had so much, they've had to create a more formal framework for that called expanded access, and they are moving over to that now. And we do expect data from the first clinical trials of that drug in April. And finally, I want to tell you about a development on some existing drugs for rheumatoid arthritis. Roche says it's gotten the go-ahead from the FDA to start its clinical trial uh, of its drug called Actemra. Now, this is a drug that could tamp down on the immune response, the lung inflammation, and in severe cases of COVID-19. So they plan to start that trial in early April. Regeneron has already started a trial of its drug called Kevzara. I just was talking with them and they gave me an update. They expect to get data within a month, so mid 
to late April. Uh, they say, unfortunately, the, the trials are enrolling very quickly, and that's unfortunate because it means there are so many severe patients in the hospital who are eligible for this drug. Uh, but they do plan on getting that data in April. So everybody is waiting with bated breath, Kelly, to see how yeah. well these drugs work. And we're all hoping that maybe if this thing comes back, you know, next year, fall, winter, whatever, that there's at least treatments, if not uh, maybe a vaccine available. But the interesting thing, Meg, is that the transfer of some of these drugs to help treat coronavirus, does that risk shortages of what they are intended for them, you know, in, in regular course of medicine? Yes, and we are already seeing that. Data from Premier, which is a hospital purchaser, uh, shows that the demand for hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine has gone up by so much that patients who take it for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, those are its approved uses, are having trouble accessing it. So doctors say that is another unintended consequence of all of this attention on an unproven therapy for COVID-19. Can they ramp that up uh, more quickly, the production? Or is, that a, is, you know, is it an exotic or a rather straightforward thing? Well, we actually have heard from manufacturers saying they are ramping up, including Mylan saying it's going to turn its West Virginia facility back on and they should be able to create millions of doses. Uh, But this is just starting. So um, in order to fix that problem, you are probably going to see a lag in the system. All right, Meg, great info as always. Thank you so much. That's our Meg Terrell. Meantime, the Senate is trying again to push through the coronavirus rescue bill a day after Democrats blocked the passage during a procedural vote. Joining me now on the CNBC Newsline is Republican Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. Uh, Senator, it's great to have you. Where are you and, and where's this bill? Uh, where does it currently stand? Yeah, I'm in my office uh, about to go vote. Uh, Democrats continue to say that they're not going to vote to pass it. I'm not quite sure what Schumer's complaining about. It was formed because there were five working groups of Republicans and Democrats, and then those five working groups, the product of those five working groups was joined together. The Speaker, Pelosi, she also had input. I know that because a provision that I thought would be a good idea, which Democrats in the Senate thought was a good idea, I'm told her staff vetoed. Uh, there was an agreement, and then Pelosi and Schumer walked in and blew it up. And since then, Pelosi, excuse me, Schumer has been claiming he needs more and more and more. I'm not quite sure what's going on. I do know that the American people, their, um, if you will, bad situation will be prolonged because of what Schumer is doing. Well, Arkela Tausch reported towards the top of the hour that one of the demands was, uh, I think, for airlines to be, uh, I'll have to use the language exactly, more climate focused uh, as, a, as a string attached for getting the bailouts. Um, is that, do, you know, do you know what exactly the, the hangups here are? Because there's a lot of rumors making the rounds. I, can, I, I have not heard that, but that would blow my mind if right now they are trying to put climate policy in something which is trying to keep the American economy going. If they are doing that, that is just incredible. What we're doing for the airlines is a loan. It is not a bailout, but it will keep flight attendants, it will keep pilots, it will keep ground crew, you name it, employed. And if that's what they're trying to do, this is just a loss with reality. I'm sorry to be so aggravated, but if that is true, uh, I feel like throwing a chair across the room. Would this bill have passed already if you had uh, all of your Republican colleagues there? No, they're they're absent because of coronavirus or or concerns about it, right? What's going on with the count and and, and who's there and who's not there? Well, it it needs 60 votes. We have five people out, uh, self-quarantine, Scott Paul, Romney Lee, and Gardner. Uh, but, But it should be unanimous. It should be truly unanimous because it was worked on on a bipartisan basis 
We had complete sign-off with the White House, the Democratic leader, and McConnell, and then uh, Schumer blew it up. And if it's over, climate change policy on air flight emissions? I, I, I'm just I'm just stupefied. I don't I don't believe that's the only hang up. I've seen a few other uh, things that people. But again, I, I don't want to you know speak. I don't have the information in front of me. I'm sure that there's there, there's a lot that, as always, that goes on behind closed doors here. But obviously, this is of the utmost urgency for the public. So uh, if this does pass the procedural vote today, which it only needs 54, correct? You still need that those 60 members to, to pass that. Altogether? No, I believe we need 60 for the procedural vote. 60, okay. Yeah, no, it's, it's hard following the Senate rules sometimes. We always have to, to become experts again in the middle of, of these financial crises. But uh, bottom line, you think this thing should pass unanimously no matter what? There's going to be things in here, in retrospect, we wish we would have tightened. But what's more important right now? Getting dollars to a hospital, which is frontline, caring for people who have COVID-19 and, by the way, still have appendicitis, a heart attack, and, and a car wreck, the resources that those institutions need to, to function, a financial support to provide liquidity for small businesses and for large businesses, uh, to keep those folks, to keep their employees employed, that's the key thing, to keep their employees employed, or to work on some of the nonsense they're talking about. And yes, of course we'd like to have tighter legislation, but I sure would really wish we didn't have COVID-19. As long as we have COVID-19, I think there has to be a sense of urgency. FDR once said, it's, important, it's more important to have energy than efficiency. At this point, it's more important to have energy than efficiency. All right, Senator, we know you have to go. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. Still to come here, Wall Street getting bullish on some stocks today. We're going to tell you the names and why they seem more attractive right now. Uh, this all is the Dow is down about 481 points right now. At session lows, we were down almost 5%, so we're still a ways off of that. Uh, S&P down 54, the Nasdaq's down 33. It's only down half a percent. By far the outperformer. Banks are one of the hardest hit segments of the market. The KBE Bank ETF and the KRE Regional Bank ETF are hitting lows not seen since 2012 earlier today. They're down 7.5% right now. J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, all down 3 to 5, almost 6% in Citigroup's case right now. Uh, don't go anywhere. Much more here on The Exchange right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome back. The street is getting bullish on a couple of names as the market downturn continues. Let's dig through a few of them, see what we can find out. Goldman is uh, getting bullish on Boeing. 
Yes, Boeing upgrading it to a buy with a $173 price target. Goldman is saying that flying will be as popular as ever when the COVID-19 issues are resolved and that the company's liquidity remains manageable. Also, that aerospace, they say, is still a long-term secular growth market. Shares of Boeing are up nearly 14 percent today. How about J.P. Morgan, which added Dollar General to its focus list with a $177 price target? The analysts there saying it's a defensive and value play with a favorable risk reward, saying Dollar General has multi-year same-store sales support and a favorable pricing environment. Uh, Dollar General shares, though, are only fractionally higher right now. Finally, Baird raising Netflix to outperform and hiking their price target to $415 from $350, saying the lack of live sports coupled with growing consumer economic pressures could accelerate video cord cutting. Baird's channel checks, they say, suggest strong adoption globally for Netflix, and Netflix shares are up 8.5% today to 361 Well, the Federal Reserve today announcing historic new programs to buy treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, quote, in the amounts needed, effectively unlimited. My next guest says that while this move is necessary, the current slowdown is much worse than the 2008 financial crisis. I'm joined now by Dennis Berman. He's managing director at Lazard. And Dennis, it's good to see you again, albeit uh, a little alarmed by (laughs) by what you're saying about the economy. Well, it's it's a bit funny to uh, to be here in my home talking to you, but uh, we got to move on. So. Um, you know, I was just I was just thinking uh, over the weekend, Kelly. Uh, some of the streets in my little town here, every barber, every restaurant, every florist, every dentist, every contractor, you name up and down the line. The economic damage to these small and medium sized businesses, we've only just begun to calculate and we are literally just days into uh, this uh, this lockdown. So I, I don't think we can even fathom I don't even have the tools to properly evaluate the uh, economic damage to uh, shutting down each and every one of these businesses. Dennis, you're cutting in and out a little bit. And I'm going to see if, if, I'm going to ask a long question, see if the sound improves uh, at your next uh, answer here. But my question is, is having reported on what happened in the financial crisis, how companies were able to use tools from the Fed and Treasury in order to ultimately kind of help start the rebound, does what you see today encourage you? Do we ha- are you frustrated like others that the stimulus bill is not passed already? Do they need to be considering a different kind or mechanism of support because this is a different crisis by nature? Right. Well, given the uh, scale of the stimulus bill b- being debated, uh, obviously speed has to be paramount. But uh, it doesn't strike me as, as off base for there to be some debate about what the contours of that bill are, Kelly. I mean, again, we have to understand. The economy around the world has basically shut down simultaneously. To compare it to the uh, to the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, there, there really is no comparison whatsoever. There, there were obviously incredible dislocations in the, in the mortgage-backed securities uh, market and individual mortgages in the U.S. Uh, and in banks around the world, but this is of a far different scale. So uh, my colleague uh, at Lazard, Peter Orzag, wrote a very interesting piece today uh, discussing the importance of, um, of sort of Thinking as largely as as big as we can, Kelly, uh, but also uh, putting some governors on uh, what relief looks like to these businesses, so they have the opportunity to pay back their uh, their loans over time, uh, and we uh, we don't push too much uh, responsibility on them too fast. Basically, create a mechanism that allows them to uh, to pay back those loans uh, as as need be uh, as this crisis goes on. But no, I don't. I don't think we've begun to uh, appreciate whatsoever, Kelly, 
um, yeah. how big the economic impact has been. You know, but I, I guess the way I come at this a little bit differently, yeah. which is while we've never been through something like this where the whole economy in the U.S. just stops on a dime, we, if we mm-hmm. see anything like a 20 or 30 percent drop in GDP in the quarter, it's unprecedented. But the last recession, Dennis, ended some imbalances in the economy that were unsustainable. The housing bubble, you know, what was going on with the banks. I mean, the banks are in so much better condition today, in large part thanks to what mm-hmm. was done to clean up that mess. So mm-hmm. in this case, sure, the lights have gone out across the economy, but when you turn them back on again, people are still going to go back to the behaviors that they were doing before. They're going to use the airlines. They're going to stay at hotels. You know, do you think things are going to have permanently changed as a result of this? Because unless this becomes a full-fledged financial crisis, and granted we're close, we should be able to go right back to those behaviors, ob- right? I have three observations uh, for you. One, uh, this assumes that people will have jobs by which they will have money to spend on the things you mentioned. So. Uh, the longer this goes on, the fewer people will be employed. We've seen estimates of up to, what, 37 million job losses, which is an absolutely staggering and incredible sum. Uh, two, uh, I think there will be incredible social uh, governmental changes for a generation that dwarf uh, the changes we saw after the 0809 crisis. For instance, uh, the Fed's actions after 0809 really kind of papered over, at least temporarily, some of the uh, problems with our pension system, uh, even some healthcare, uh, state budgets. Uh, we are now going to have a clarifying moment for uh, being able to sustain a standard of living that we've come to expect in the United States. And, and frankly, I think we're going to have to adjust uh, those uh, parameters. Because right. um, so we're just not going to be able to afford it, uh, given uh, uh, packages uh, talked about in, in the trillions. So there will be a, a reckoning uh, well beyond uh, uh, individual spending that you're talking about, Kelly. Well, I'm going to say goodbye now uh, that you thoroughly depressed me. So, uh, Dennis. Wait, wait, wait. Can I, give you, can I give you one hopeful thing? Quickly. Okay. One hopeful thing. Uh, there will, uh, I think, be uh, pockets of opportunity for people who uh, can bridge between between now and, and then. Um, and there are going to be businesses that, are, that actually are stronger uh, out of this. And I think behavior is going to change uh, in a way that does create opportunity. All so right. it, all is not lost, but we must be realistic about uh what we are confronting here. And so I think going big, as, as my colleague Peter Orzag says, I think is essential. But uh, we have to appreciate um, we cannot sustain these job losses that we're now now uh, faced with. Amen to that. All right, Dennis, thanks More. very much. I think you hear your kid in the background. <laughs> Dennis, <laughs> well, that's everyone. Yes, so, thank Dennis you. Berman, we uh, appreciate uh, it. In the meantime, the hotels in particular are in focus as they begin to furlough employees. Seema Modi with the details. Seema? Kelly, uh, the number of hotel closures continues to rise, and that's pushing these operators to reduce their staff. Uh, Hilton and Hyatt confirming with CNBC that they are undergoing furloughs of employees following uh, the sharp decline that we've seen in hotel occupancy. Hilton saying it'll affect tens of thousands of workers, follows a, a similar decision taken by Marriott last week. It also coincides with more hotel REITs suspending operations. Pebblebrook uh, Hotel REIT says 28 of the company's hotels and resorts have temporarily closed. I'll also just point out some news from CVS Health, Kelly. It says furloughed workers from Hilton and Marriott will fill some of the 50,000 new job openings it has. So you're, you are seeing some level of uh, cross-coordination between different industries here to get some of those workers back to work right now. All right, Seema, thank you. you very much. We appreciate it, Seema Modi. And let's just uh, let everybody know this. Remember the Trillion Dollar Club with those four names, Microsoft, Apple, uh, Google, and Amazon? There's only one company left that's still worth over a trillion dollars, say. It is Microsoft, and it's hanging on by about an $8 billion threat. In fact, those four companies have now lost a trillion dollars worth of market cap. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 